the land of milk and honey, the lamb and the lion lay in gentle harmony. But then a deer showed up, and there wasn't nearly so much milk or honey to go around. And a wolf was close on the deer's heels, and suddenly, the lion didn't feel so secure in her provisions. Oh, and seeds from beggar sticks? Well, they showed up in the meadow on the woolly paws of the wolf, and soon started to displace the native clovers. Oh, why couldn't they all just get along? Biodiversity sure sounds sweet, but the more the merrier need not apply when it comes to competition. In this episode, we look at how organisms compete for the essentials, food, water, shelter, sex, when supplies are limited, and the competition is cutthroat. So take off your boxing gloves as we settle the score. This is The Single Acorn. But first, a word from our sponsor. Does your house end up looking like a circus when you pack for a trip? Suitcase is a mess? Can't find your luggage at the airport? Try elephant trunks, the sturdy, no-nonsense nesting luggage. Our trunks come with special trackers, so you'll always remember what's inside. And the cost to you? Mere peanuts! Don't be a dumbo. Purchase a set of elephant trunks today. Well, hi there, fellow naturalists. I'm Professor Iwigi, and welcome to the Single Acorn Podcast. Uh, I am here today to talk about competition with my good friend, Glenn Etter. Hello. Glenn is a uh, yeah a senior advisor with MacArthur's online dating profile service. <laughs> it's true. Love is more important now than ever, Teak or Professor Iwigi, I should say. So <laughs> either will do. We aim to provide a service that people can really benefit from. Yeah, I mean, I I guess what you so you work with uh, social media profiles to make people seem more competitive in the dating marketplace. We like to use the term more lovable, but. Yeah, I suppose one way to look at it is they have sort of an edge in the competition. It's a tough world out there, Teague. Got to fight. Fight for your right to reproduce. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's also our motto. Yeah. Well, hopefully your expertise and experience working with, uh, yeah, long, young struggling lovers will help in our discussion I can of only competition. Hope so. and, and, if, yeah. and if our listeners out there want to take us up, take me up on our services, you know, they can DM me. <laughs> yeah. What's your handle? You too, Teague. Um, love handle, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. My handle includes the word handle. Smart. <laughs> it's not, it has nothing to do Memorable. with my physique. Just want to put, put that out there. I'm, I'm also, you know, I have a profile of myself. So, yeah, I've been working out. Love handles are reduced, but my handle is love handle. Excellent. Cool. Well, let's 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 see how that dovetails in our discussion here about competition. <laughs> so, yeah, so we've been talking about symbiosis uh, in this first season, and this is our last episode here uh, on the topic. Sad. And yeah, it is a little bit sad. So we're wrapping up with competition and symbiosis are these long term evolutionary relationships that have developed through time where one organism is either benefited or harmed in the relationship and the other one is also benefited or harmed or sometimes are just totally neutral. Um, and so with competition, you have both species where they're negatively impacted by the effects of competition, by the effects of their relationship with one another. So I think for competition is hard to observe. Often what we're seeing is sort of a snapshot. Like if you go out into the woods, you're seeing a snapshot of the end result of competition. So competition that's already taken place, that's caused all of these different organisms to make a living for themselves in very different ways. Going back so in time. Yeah, going back in time. So we don't necessarily get to see competition happening all the time. But one of the things that I was thinking about while I was putting together the outline for this was uh, an experience I had when I was out in Morrow Bay out in California for a field botany class. 
And after class at our campsite, I wound up, it was right on this little salt marsh. And so I wound up going out into the salt marsh and I was sitting uh, next to this um, plant, Baccarus pilularis, which is a coyote bush. And I just started watching what was going on on the leaves and on the little flowers. And there were all these different insects that were buzzing around on it. And I started to, to count the different species that I was observing. And I made a challenge where I was going to sit and wait for until I saw seven different species ah, that were on the number. plant. Lucky number seven. Many of our clients also I tell them that. Emblazon themselves with sevens and I better luck than love. <laughs> I, I did I did notice on your uh, the merch section that you have just instead <laughs> of the eight of ball stuff. sweatshirts you have the seven ball <laughs> the seven sweatshirts ball, which is maroon which is also a nice soothing color. Yeah, definitely. So on the coyote bush, there were uh, it only took a few minutes before I was able to count the seven different species, and I was kind of blown away by that that there would be one species of plant that in just a few short minutes would have seven different species that were coming to that plant and utilizing it in different ways. Were they eating it? Most of them eating it, as far as you could tell? Well, so there's, yeah, so I mean, we're talking about competition. So presumably you have this one individual organism and other things are competing for access to it. But when we talk about competition, we'll talk about uh, competition and access for different types of resources. And so one is the the plant as a source of food. Uh, there were also spiders that were, that had built nests, or not nests, but had built webs on the plant. And so... Some were utilizing it for food, some were using it, utilizing it for food for like nectar, some were feeding on the leaves, some were making their homes on the plant. So there were a bunch of different ways of using it. So it's kind of this cool example, and I've given myself this challenge to go to different plants and different ecosystems to try and stay at that plant until seven different until species seven. have come. What's the it. longest amount of time you've ever spent trying to get to the seven? I guess last summer uh, I was sitting just near my house, there's a patch of this invasive plant called goutweed. And it's this small little plant with this little, it looks like a firework explosion of white flowers. Wow. And they're pretty dinky. And uh, I sat there for probably about an hour and a half or so. There were all of these long-legged flies, which is a, a species of fly, that were there. And a bunch of them looked different. So I was like, ah, I don't know if I should <laughs> count that one. But then I was seeing ants and I saw some aphids. And uh, for that one, I was restricting it just to the flowers to see how many different species were going after it as uh, pollinators. So that Special was a home challenge. And you got yeah. to seven after an hour and a half? Or you gave up? Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Uh, never give but up. You don't give up. That's right. <laughs> no, you don't I give sorry, up. Wiggy doesn't give up. <laughs> Not a chance. Competitive. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you can do this for, you know, any different thing. So if you think about like a, a tiny little Snickers bar, uh, which would be like a white-footed mouse out in the woods, that thing <laughs> is a resource that all of these other different species are competing to eat. So there are things that fly that eat white-footed mice. So owls hunt for them at night. There are hawks that hunt for them during the day. Fairies. Fairies. Hungry yeah, fairies fa might hunt for yeah. them. Yeah, the ethereal hunters. <laughs> <laughs> Harder to see and count, but they're there. Yeah, they're more hunting for the essence of the, yeah, uh, the white-footed mouse. The soul, the spirit, what have you. But yeah, I think it would count. Yeah, uh, there are also things like weasels that'll hunt for them. And then I was trying to think of like, what are all the like out the like really out there examples of things that would also eat mice, but uh, pitcher plants. Uh, so there are even plants that are competing for this resource. Of Does that you know, happen? Mice support. get caught in the pitcher plants? Yeah. That's yeah. on record? 
Yeah. Wow. That's a big meal for a plant. Yeah. Uh, and they're also like uh, toads, or not toads, sorry, uh, bullfrogs, bullfrogs, which are voracious predators and all eat a ton of different things. And snakes um, all eat white-footed mice. People, scientists maybe, never cry wolf. I don't know if you've seen. I've Yeah, I've read. eaten them. Um, there, uh, okay, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How are they? Uh, they our listeners so might want to know yeah they're so small i mean they're like uh so the first time i had them was at baron heinrich's camp up in maine uh no that's not true the first time i had them was in santa barbara uh where that was when i got really into just you have a map eating. of like pins up where you've eaten mice and different... <laughs> i probably could It'd either be time. yeah santa barbara or here okay a simple map uh did you prepare them the same way both times not both times uh just like i've roasted them like over a fire on a little spit and their bones right. are tiny enough that you can eat just most eat of right the bones without yeah. having to worry about them cracking your teeth um but yeah i've cooked them on a little skillet it's <laughs> a lot of work for not a lot of meat yeah. just for our listeners out there would you recommend spit or skillet if they could only do it once it's a one-time thing like a date for example well so i i roasted a squirrel on a uh spit and that one then you can sort of like it feels a little bit more like a Norse Viking, just like right, digging into there. a haunch of something. And then with a mouse, it's just so small that if you cook it on a skillet, you could put it in like you know a something bunch else, of butter pasta. or something like that. And I see. yeah, it's probably okay. worth it to skillet. Moving on, just might have diverted us, but I was fascinated by that. So thank you oh, for sorry. sharing. Yeah. So what do you think of when you think of competition? Like how would how would you give a sort of a vernacular definition? Well, I would say uh, well, if we're talking about in terms of animals, two animals, you know, trying to get the same resource, almost, <clears throat> I mean, I guess I don't think of it as a race, but a little bit of a race, like who gets there first and who's more effective at like getting, you know, maybe two predators and they're both competing for the same sort of prey. And so they get there and eat the animal first and there's not much left for the second animal, so trying to use whatever they can to get their resource and keep the other, you know, keep it as much to themselves as possible. It's a competition. They're not sharing. Competitors don't share <laughs> no. that much. Yeah. I mean, there, there are workarounds, right, where you can share because all these predators we just were talking about in parasites, um, like bot flies uh, for the white-footed mouse or nematodes or something else. Oh, it was so gross. One of the uh, mice that I had caught and uh i was skinning it and when i uh opened up the gut cavity i could see the stomach and i could actually see these little white nematodes oh slithering God. around on the certain like edge of the the did stomach you use those it was also? so gross did you eat so those as a side course probably not no the the awful o-f-f-a-l the, right, the awful guts, awful uh usually the awful awful i just yeah some people i guess eat it but not this guy yeah, well, you're right, though. But you're saying, you know, lots of things can share, share and say, for example, a classic prey. I mean, you see lots of scavengers coming in. You know, the lions make a kill, and then the hyenas are there, and then the vultures. And maybe eventually the nematodes come in. I'm not sure where they, how they fit into that. Yeah, I mean, the key, the key is to use the resources in, in different ways, which we'll, we'll talk about later. But uh, when you talk about resources, what are you talking about for, like, what are the types of resources that you're imagining these species competing for you know i think the first thing that comes to mind tiger these but maybe i've been influenced by too many wildlife documentaries which focus on you know the stalking predator 
but <clears throat> it would be like live prey, but then obviously, you know, plants or maybe some massive, um, you know, windfall of mast or nuts falls down and everyone's trying to get the nuts when they're on the ground. So I tend to think of it in terms of food, but I'm sure there's pr competition for things like homes, right? Or, uh, I don't know, um, areas, territories, etc. There's probably competition for almost everything. There's probably people fighting to listen to this podcast, you know, trying to get on a, a computer at the library and there's some sort of race or elbowing going on. Yeah, the key is it has to be a limited resource. So maybe when we get, you know, a billion downloads a day, our limited resource will be bandwidth capacity. So for a big mass fall, that's like one of the strategies, right? For trees, if they unload all their nuts, there's so much that there's essentially no competition. All the animals can eat their fill and there's still leftover. So in that situation, that's not called competition when there's just an abundant resource that that's not exhausted. That's not really competition. But well, that's how um, that's how masting plants exploit this idea of competition. Because if you if you have all if you have this abundance of a resource, you're going to have all of these different things that are competing for, let's say, acorns. So you have chipmunks, you have white-footed mice, you have uh, turkey, deer, blue jays, gray squirrels red squirrels, northern flying squirrels, all these different species, acorn weevils that are competing for that resource. So if every year an oak tree, a mature oak tree produced 100 acorns, there'd be intense competition for that resource and everything would eat 100% of them. If you're an oak and you produce 100 acorns one year, 100 acorns one year, and then the third year you produce 25,000, then even though there'd be intense competition for the acorns, there wouldn't be enough Predators, predators of those acorns to monopolize the entire because, resource and so there because be competition some in prior years has sort of limited the number of predators that are out there yeah so the more limited a resource the more intense the effects of competition are going to be i see so yeah. you limit 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 and then explode explode yeah um, yeah, so uh, resources, uh, anything that is limited in the environment, uh, and there are two different types of resources, renewable and non-renewable resources. So a renewable one is something that constantly regenerates itself. So like the acorns are a renewable resource um, versus the oak tree, which is rooted in place that's competing in the soil for moisture and nutrients. Uh, it is monopolizing a non-renewable space, which or a non-renewable resource, which is space or territory. So there's two different ways of thinking about the resources that things are competing uh, for. When we look at competition, there are two general types. So uh, there's intraspecific and there's interspecific. Intraspecific is competition within a species. And when we've been talking about symbioses, we've been talking, we've been, we've been trying to keep our conversations focused around the interspecific uh symbioses so inter means across or like between species lines so from one species to another and then intra specific is competition within species. or more within a species back yeah to the dating surface more of an intra specific situation in most cases we do have a few clients that like to date other species but we don't publicize them yeah cool so in terms of looking at uh, how competition plays out in terms of being like an evolutionary or a driving force in the divergence of organisms, when we look at intraspecific, you can have really different morphologies or appearances of different sexes because they have different ways of interacting with the environment and different energetic needs 
to sustain their life history, right? So males and com- females are competing often in different ways. For different n- niches. Do we still yeah. use niches for for the sort of subset of the environment that a species would be um, exploiting, I guess? Yeah, de- definitely. And so, it, so it's called sexual dimorphism when you have a different male and female appearance. And so with something like uh, box elders, which are a type of maple, uh, but they have different morphologies for male and female plants. So the male and female flowers are on separate trees. So only one set of the individuals in a population are going to produce fruits, which is really energetic. It takes more energy. So they need more better nutrients. I don't know, better soil, the female. Yeah, exactly. Trees. Yeah. So uh, there's, uh, if you look at the habitats where the males are found versus the females, the females are better at competing against the males in sites that are a little bit moister and a little bit more nutrient rich, whereas the males can compete better on um, like drier nutrient poor soils. And there's a whole set of morphological differences between the leaves that show up where the leaves on the males tend to have like waxier cuticles so that they can retain moisture. And they tend to grow in like maybe slightly sunnier sites. So they have uh, slightly thicker layers of photosynthetic cells. Um, so there's some of these different morphological differences between males and females because they have different energetic they have different energy needs and also well isn't sexual dimorphism also driven by a different kind of competition competition for mates so the males of some species might develop some sort of i don't know giant horn or feather or something feather pattern to attract mates and then that might in turn lead to different energetic requirements i'm guessing yeah definitely i mean uh so I, I don't know if we actually wound up talking about it, um, but there's a, a type of uh, barnacle that's a parasite on a bunch of different crabs, but green crabs in particular, and they uh, castrate the... Uh, I've heard about the castrating barnacles, and then yeah. I immediately tried to forget about it because... <laughs> yeah, and so they... So basically any organism that has to reproduce, which is all organisms, uh, has to spend energy on doing that. And for females, the primary energy cost associated with reproduction is developing the sex cells and then raising the fertilized egg to a certain point, whether it's like to an egg or to um, like a weaned baby. And then with the males, often the reproductive costs or energy costs associated with reproduction are in terms of like competition for access to mating and so that's where you have like fiddler claws or you have deer with these big dumb antlers or you have (laughs) uh, bright red cardinals or like red winged blackbirds which are extremely territorial amongst the males not the females Uh, the males are like 75 percent larger than the females are they also have these like brilliant black bodies with these bright red and yellow uh, epaulets or sort of shoulder patches and the epaulets are purely to attract a mate yeah and it's yeah exactly it's not i mean the females are these brown sort of streaky sparrow looking birds that are completely camouflaged yeah competition for access to reproduction has resulted in really different appearances but then also uh, behavior types so males are super aggressive i used to work in chicago for the park district and we would put up signs that would warn people about the dive bombing red wing blackbirds <laughs> they're just so insanely aggressive during the the mating season i wonder if you could set up you know a little camp when you had your own sort of 
protective red winged blackbird defending your territory. At least you'd have to convince <laughs> that you're not a threat. It sounds complicated, but so that's uh, sort of just a brief note on intra-specific competition. But then you know what our our driving our discussion or what our focus is is interspecific. And so this is where you have species, two different species or more, uh, that are competing for access to the same limited resource in their environment. And so competition has been studied pretty intensely for the last 100, 150 years or so. And a bunch of different researchers have come up with this competitive exclusion principle in different forms. Um, And the competitive exclusion principle says that if you have two species that are competing for the same resource, that they can't do that indefinitely. One, only one will in the end survive. Yeah, because species are not equal in their ability to acquire a resource. Say you have something like a gray squirrel and a red squirrel that are competing for walnuts. If you put them just in a vacuum, where it's just the two of them, gray squirrels are way more territorial, way more aggressive, and would spend more time defending the walnuts and fighting off the gray squirrels. And so if there was nothing else in the environment except for those two species and one food resource... The red squirrels would win. The red squirrels would win, which is crazy because they're like half the size They're smaller, they're tiny, but they're just so vicious. Yeah. Mm. And so there are a bunch of different researchers who have found this out so uh arthur tansley who is a a british botanist um he was working with bedstraws in england and there are two different uh species that he was working with one species gallium uh hercinicum which grows on uh really acidic sites and gallium uh, pumilum which is confined more to calcareous sites and so these are two different species of bedstraws and they have non-overlapping distributions, right? And so this is back to that idea of what we see today is just a snapshot of competition that's happened in the past. And so these two different species, so Gallium uh, hercinicum and uh, Gallium pumilum, uh, they have non-overlapping ranges. And so then the question is, well, can they only grow on either acidic sites or calcareous sites? And so it was a pretty easy test that you could do. So this guy, Arthur Tansley, took both of those species and grew them on their preferred sites and then grew them alone on sites that were where the other species grew. And they did fine. They could do okay, right? They could do okay. And you see this all the time. Like if you walk down your street, you're going to see this. So if you look at the ornamentals that people have in their gardens, those ornamentals are from around the world, from uh, different bioregions, from different uh, zones of hardiness. So I have in my backyard, I have peaches and plums and apricots and all of these other warmer adapted species. Uh, I also have black locusts growing, which all of these species out in the wild would not be able to compete but I give them a competitive advantage by weeding out. By weeding out their competitors. Their... Yeah. And so that's exactly what Tansy was doing. And so they uh, can grow on a range of soils, but they're both better at competing on one specific type of soils. So for the Hercinicum, it was acidic sites. And for Pumilum, it was calcareous sites. So then if you try and grow both of those species together on each of those different soil types... Only one of them is going to win out in the end. And that matches what you see with the natural distribution. Now, we do see, if you walk out in a forest, it's not like you see one species of tree. You know, you're seeing multiple species of trees and what appears to be the same 
same sort of soil or same environment. And so is that because there's different microhabitats that allow the meats to predominate or um, why isn't it just one species becomes dominant in a forest? Yeah, well, there are all these limiting factors. So there's uh, what's called realized and then fundamental niches. And so there's the uh, fundamental, which is all of the places in the entire world where that organism could live successfully. And then there's the realized, which is be the result of predation, the result of parasitism, and largely the result of competition, which is the actual places where that species can live out in the wild. And so competition limits largely the distribution of different species. So when you go out into the forest, um, some species that could grow there are not there because they're being excluded from that site by competition. But then Competition isn't the only factor. There are a bunch of different factors that make it so one species that might be better at competing at a site isn't the only species that grows there. Mature trees and saplings aren't the same in terms of their habitat requirements. There are these species called gap closure species. So if a gap opens up, a, <clears throat> a tree falls down or a storm comes in, then gap closure species can move in? Yeah, exactly. So like um, a forest type that's, you know, near me is the uh, like hemlock forest. And these are incredibly shady forests. And if you look at the understory, the understory is entirely made up of hemlocks. And so if you come back in a thousand years, the understory is going to be the overstory and it'll be hemlocks again. However, there are every now and then there'll be like a, a sweet birch that grows in there or maybe a paper birch or a yellow birch. And these are things that have these tiny little seeds and they're producing for paper birch are producing like up to 9 million seeds a year. Good Lord. And for one tree? For one tree. And they're just scattering them to the wind, hoping they land on a suitable site. But because they're producing so many seeds, each little seed is super, super small. So it doesn't have a lot of stored energy. So it can't land on a site that has an accumulation of thick leaf litter. It has to land on bare soil. So take that hemlock forest that could be a pier stand because hemlocks are good at uh, competing in really shady environments. But if you have a hemlock that in a windstorm falls over or an ice storm shears off a bunch of branches and ultimately kills a tree and then the tree falls over, when the tree falls over, it uh, pulls up all of this soil and it exposes soil and creates this little micro niche that birch seedlings can compete really well in they compete compete better than hemlocks in right so it's like a small little niche that they're able to exploit so a forest you know might appear to be a Uniform, big but it's it's not it has lots of little micro niches it sounds like yeah and there's also like a process of succession so like if you cleared a site then you'd get primary succession species that are wind dispersed, have small little seeds, and then they're often short-lived and shade intolerant. After 100 years of clearing an area and 100 years of reforestation, you're going to get the process of those first trees starting to die, but they're all shade intolerant, so they can't grow under they their can't own grow shade. Under their own shade, so they're yeah, so they start to get their babies are doomed. It sounds like so the competitive exclusion principle. Uh it's there are multiple niches out there in nature so it's not like one species will become utterly dominant often in a, in a particular place because there's little spaces and room for other species to have their own competitive advantages within that 
Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, one of the more famous experiments on this is done in Scotland where um, this uh, boy was, I don't remember the researcher's name, um, but they were looking at, um, starts with a C. You just start corn. listing off corn. Uh, there you go. Called cor- corn? No, it was. It was. <laughs> it was corn? It was, I think his name was Cornell. <laughs> um so (laughs) perfect i wish that was that would always work so anyway so uh this guy was studying uh barnacles and there are a few different species of barnacles that live on this sort of rocky barnacles right no 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 different different type Um, (laughs) you don't have to pay attention at all already traumatized from the earlier Uh, earlier in the show go ahead so um he was looking at uh the distribution of barnacles and noticed that there was uh one species, Cathamelus, which was found up at the very top band, the highest part of the tidal zone. And then below that, it was almost exclusively semi-balanous, a different type of uh, uh, barnacle. And so then the question was, well, why do you have this banding where you have this small little zone where you get one species and then the rest is with this other one? And so what he did is just created these exclusion uh, zones and so he had some rocks where he would pull off all of the semibalanus that was the one that was uh more widely distributed but lower in the water column and then he had another one where he pulled off just the thamelus which was found in this zone up at the top he what he found was basically both of these barnacles their larvae was in the water column all over so their larvae were landing everywhere and could potentially anchor at any point on the rocks so it wasn't about their larvae. And what he found is both barnacles could fill an entire swath of rock from the upper tidal zone to the lower tidal zone just fine. But in the presence of one another, the thamelus was uh, restricted to the upper limits just because of competition. Competitive and, advantage. Yeah, because it had that competitive advantage. So is there a danger? Well, I'm curious. Like, So <clears throat> these organisms that have a extreme competitive advantage and so this entire swath becomes almost like a monoculture right like that is the organism that predominates there does that make them vulnerable to i don't know disease or pests or parasites that come into that swath and then it's just sort of they're all there together and then they just can get taken out because we hear about the dangers of monoculture from time to time are these like monocultures that nature is producing through competition what uh, Cornell found in, in that study was that the semibalanus was way better at competition just in general. And so in any head-to-head competition, uh, semibalanus would win. However, in really extreme parts of the environment, like that upper tidal zone that's exposed to air for most of the time, the competitive advantage switched to cathamelus. And so that would outcompete just in that small little zone. You have a similar ecosystem on the West Coast where you have uh, acorn barnacles out there in the genus Balanus. Um, you also have uh, mussels in the genus Mytilus. And the Mytilus mussels are significantly better at competing in these sites. So then with your question, if you introduce another factor that's not just the tidal shifts, but say you introduce my favorite of all organisms, Pizzastrocratius. That's your favorite. I didn't know that. Yeah, the ochre sea star. And um, I could go on and on about how cool they are. <laughs> they but they have, these... have a season devoted to them. Later. Yeah. They're uh, these keystone predators in these rocky intertidal zones. And they prefer to go after... Well, if you... 
you know, if you had a grocery store and the grocery store had two items and 99% of the items were Snicker bars and 1% were Milky Ways and you preferred Milky Ways, it would be harder for you to find Milky Ways. So you would just eat Snickers. You also might want to go to a different grocery store after a while. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That sounds like the healthiest place. Yeah. Yeah. This podcast <laughs> brought to you by Snickers. <laughs> So, uh, so with Possessor Acratius, uh, it, it will go after the most abundant thing, and it also conveniently prefers to eat the most abundant thing, which is Mytilus. And Mytilus, which is a stronger competitor, if you removed the Ochre Sea Star from these rocky intertidal zones, then the the dominant species would just outcompete everything else. The dominant competitor would right. outcompete everything else. So the muscle, which is a dominant competitor, would outcompete everything else, and you would have a monoculture there. But, but the when predators you introduce are, the predators are keeping diversity alive by preying on the 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 species with the, the competitive advantage. Yeah, exactly, because um, it reduces the amount of advantage that it has over the other. Other species. So if you're too successful, some predator is probably going to come along and specialize it at you. Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, the, uh, there's this idea like nature abhors a vacuum. And so wherever you have a resource that's not getting exploited, something will come along and evolve a way to exploit that resource. Um, the sea star is like this perfect example of that. The there are two different types of sea stars, broadly speaking. They're the Paxilicidians and then the non-Paxilicidians. The Paxilicidians have these little tube feet that can adhere or cling to things. And so they're really good at clinging to muscles and prying them open. And then they have these stomachs that they can evert. They evert. They inside out, right? They yeah. Digest. Yeah, they digest. We don't recommend that on our dating bodies. site if you do have that ability. It's not a, it's not a first date type thing. Except for the uh, subset of the, the, the demographic the, that's yeah, made up of sea stars. Right. Yeah. Um, we do recommend it. A fetish for everyone at uh, <laughs> Nick Arthur's online dating profile service. <laughs> Nature abhors a vacuum. So if something is better at competing than you, then there are ways of, of specializing or it's called character displacement where if you have two different species that overlap significantly that especially for species that look similar um so like uh uh so you know redback salamanders i do know them we find yeah. them often with my my son quite likes finding them and where do you find them we often find them under logs and rocks in the forest most often i would say yeah, uh, I worked with this uh, kid, and and he said, "Teague, Teague, let's go. C can we go turn cover?" And he all he <laughs> wanted to do was turn cover. And he had gone to some workshop where they were turning cover, turn just cover. flipping over logs and rocks, looking for redback salamanders. We flipped them back. We put them back just to, in case our viewers are wondering. Nice, great. Restore Excellent. the habitat. Yes, that's called returning cover. Return. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> clever. So redback salamanders are extremely common and abundant. We don't see them all the time. So supposedly if you took all of the redback salamanders in New England and you put them on a scale, and then on the other side of the scale you put all of the deer, the scales the salamanders would, tip, would win. Yeah, would win. in favor of the salamanders. I would like um, to see that experiment. I don't know if it's... Yeah. Maybe just for a small patch of forest. It just doesn't sound true. I mean, the... A deer can weigh, uh, let's say, average deer size is around 100 pounds. 
and a salamander weighs You'd like need an at least. ounce. Yeah. So you need a lot. Yeah. So sixteen hundred. No, it'd be way more than that. Sixteen hundred. Yeah, if, if you need sixteen ounce, salamanders for a pound, yeah, then sixteen hundred. That's not. They that must many. weigh so much less they than, must an, than ounce. an ounce. Yeah. Maybe, even if um, we bump it up to twenty thousand, there's a lot of yeah. salamanders out there, and we've found yeah. very few deer turning cover underneath a rock. <laughs> <or> a <log. laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, they're extremely abundant, uh, and they're better at competing than a similar species called the Valley and Ridge salamanders, uh, salamander, which is restricted down to the Appalachian Mountains. Yeah, we don't have those in New England. No, we definitely don't. So if you put them in the same environment, for the most part, redback salamanders are going to outcompete them, and the Valley and Ridge salamanders will get completely displaced. Um, and that doesn't mean they just like walk away to another place. Often it just means they go locally extinct. And so they're just found in these real small little niche habitats. So this is a distribution that's called allopatric. Allo means different and then patro like fatherland. And so they have different ranges or different home territories. When you have them in allopat, when you have them uh, allopatrically distributed, their jaws look almost identical. But then in places, there are a few places down in the Appalachian Mountains where their ranges overlap, and they're what's called sympatric. And in those sympatric sites where they directly are competing for the same resources, one of two things could happen. One is that you just get uh, one species excluded from the site, so it'll just die out. And then the other one is you get character displacement. And so you'll get small modifications through time, to one or both species so that they will be uh, utilizing resources in slightly different ways. Different, have little niches within that, within yeah. that environment. They're not so, overlapping as much. So basically what has happened, if you look at the jaw structures of these salamanders, again, in allopatric populations where they're living separately, their jaws look really similar. You can't tell the difference just by looking at the measurements. But if you look at the two different salamanders that live together, the um, valley and ridge salamanders have much uh, weaker jaws, but they are much better at moving their jaws really quickly. So these are th uh, basically geared towards going after prey that are much smaller and quicker than the, uh, than the prey that the redback salamanders, which have uh, stronger but slower jaws, would be going after. So you have this physical character displacement that allows them to live in the same environment and exploit slightly different resources. The same thing showed up. So the, the classic example of this would be with brown and green anoles, which are these uh, types of li lizards that lizards. Uh, the brown anoles are found down in Cuba, but have been introduced up into Florida. And they're better at competing for resources. They're a little bit more aggressive, a little bit larger than the green anoles. And so the green anoles, both both of them are feeding primarily on the ground, and because they're not as good at uh, competing on the ground, they've shifted to feeding and you know foraging for food just slightly up off the ground uh, on vegetation. And so if you're going to spend more time up in trees climbing around, then you might expect there to be a resulting character displacement away from a terrestrial form into an arboreal form. So the green anoles that have been pushed out of their native better climbers. niche are better climbers. So they have uh, larger toes and they have more bigger toe pads and then they have more hairs on the toe pads, which uh. all 
all those things together help those things. Uh, can they glide a little bit? Can better. they jump from plant to plant? You know, maybe eventually. Some flying lizards. Hope they move in that direction. We need more of those. <laughs> that would be really fun if they could. Uh, yeah. Not yet. Maybe give them a, a few thousand generations. It might make them even more appealing as pets. I have a question, yeah. Teague. General, a general question and also a generalist question. So how do generalists fit into this model? Because there are many animals and so many birds that aren't particularly good at one niche, but they they can sample from all these different niches and be opportunistic. They're outcompeted in each of those niches, but they survive by being able to exploit many, many niches. And so they're just kind of like coming in and out of these niches that others are specialists at, maybe. Yeah, because if so, if you look at um, competition between two species, uh, like say the anoles that are going after essentially the same food resource, anole the the brown anoles aren't going to get a hundred percent of the food, and the green anoles get zero percent of the food, right? It's going to be say it's like seventy five twenty five for the split, or even if it's like fifty five forty five, that slight advantage that one species have has over time is going to result in a population boom and for the other species a slow decline and so often the result of uh competition isn't necessarily a hundred percent exclusion but a uh a significant severe reduction so if you're a generalist and you're mostly outcompeted for uh say like you're i don't know uh, like an acorn weevil, which specializes in going after acorns versus a gray squirrel that specializes, uh, or a gray squirrel that is a complete generalist. A gray squirrel could get most of its nutrients from acorns when there's an abundance of those, but it can also shift to other things, and it doesn't have to compete at 100% capacity for acorns. It can just be pretty good at getting those and opportunistically feed on acorns, but then spend a bunch of its time uh, hunting for insects, eating sap, eating walnuts, eating sunflower seeds out of your bird feeder, going after a whole bunch of different stuff. So it can opportunistically go after that limited resource. Of like, what percentage of species are generalists, you know, kind of out there? Is it a successful strategy in terms of numbers of species, or is it pretty rare for species to succeed as a generalist? It depends on on the uh, environment, certainly uh, rates of extinction for specialists are significantly higher than rates of extinction for generalists. They're more resilient. Yeah, they're more resilient because if you're, say that acorn weevil, say there was a novel virus that was introduced into an environment and uh, oak trees died, immediately acorn weevils would die right? Because they have chosen to specialize on something. But if you're in a squirrel and you could live off of acorns, but you could also live off of a hundred other things, then you have this buffer built into your life history strategy. Uh, Certainly it's an effective strategy. All invasive species, not all, but, you know, most invasive species and certainly urban species are generalists. So I mean, if you look at like the species that thrive in cities, squirrels, so the ones we see, crows, we tend to see pigeons, more, partly raccoons, because yeah. those would be the creatures that could adapt to cities faster or yeah. human changes. I guess I just th- tend to think of wonder about these questions in terms of um, birds because my son and I spend a lot of time looking at birds, and sometimes there'll be you know a mixed flock will come in. And look, it seems to be all these birds are eating from the same tree and then moving to another tree. 
I don't know if they're exploiting different niches in the same tree, if you see a bunch of warblers coming into a tree, or if they're <clears throat> just all sort of being generalists and opportunistic, you know, because there's this explosion of insects, so they can, there's enough for everyone. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think you're raising sort of like this fundamental question that uh, naturalists and ecologists have had in looking at the environment is like, how many do, or how do so many of these species exist if competition is such a, a, a fierce force in driving evolution. Yes, well put. Uh, you know, we've been talking about competitive exclusion, but there's also resource partitioning and character displacement is one mechanism for dealing with the effects of competition. But resource partitioning is this idea that if you're all competing for the same resource, but you can do it in slightly different ways, then you'll be able to still have access to that resource. So, you know, back to that white-footed mouse that's getting eaten by everything. If you're a white-footed mouse and you're active at all different times of day, then um, an owl that's hunting at night can hunt you at night and not compete directly with a red-tailed hawk or a kestrel that might be hunting you during the day. And so there's resource partitioning, which is utilizing a resource in a different way from your competitors. Is there another strategy of just showing up at places where resources are abundant? So sort of like, well, I guess, I guess I think of bird migration as you migrate to these places in the summer where there's just insects everywhere. And so it's sort of like a mass year for, for trees. There's so many resources that there's kind of enough for everyone. You don't really have to have a competitive advantage. You just show up at the right place and then there's enough food for you because there's enough food for everyone there. Is that tr true or not? My... Yeah, definitely. I mean, in terms of the limitingness of a resource, it might be seasonal, right? So, um, what was your what was your question again? I guess my question is: um, there are these instances where there resources are so abundant that competition is limited, right? There's enough kind of during a mass year. There's so many. Um, of that one kind of nut or acorn or whatever that many species can just sort of glut and eat their fill. Oh, so sure. what if you? So what if you're a bird that migrates around and just tries to take advantage of those situations to get go to places of abundance? Does that allow like multiple species to coexist because they're just showing up at these places where the resources are unlimited, basically? Yeah, I mean, well, that's why species migrate. Um, if you look at, you know, it's like 90% of species in the northern part of the northern hemisphere migrate south for the winter. And it's because the effects of competition in the winter for a severely limited resource versus the summer, too is, it's too brutal. Um, and there's not enough energy to go around at all. Um, and so... It, you know, in terms of thinking about, well, how do things avoid competing with each other? Like hibernation is a great way of avoiding competition in the winter, or migration is a great way of avoiding competition in the winter, where during the summer, you have an abundance of a resource, which is just the food that photosynthetic things are producing. And then in the winter, when photosynthesis shuts down, then you have a complete reduction or near absence of uh, production of food. And so you're just living off of uh, stored resources from the summer and that can't sustain the same population size. So to effectively compete in those environments, you could hibernate, you could migrate, or for a select few, you could stick around and forage. 
And then if you look at, like, let's say these mixed flocks of birds that forage together in the winter, uh, you have uh, brown creepers and nuthatches, which are the way that they move on a tree is very similar where they kind of hop up and down the bark. One goes up and one goes down. Yeah, exactly. So you're just looking at the world in totally different ways. And so they might be eating the same species of microlepidopterans, which are these tiny little caterpillars. But if one is looking up a tree, it's going to see one set of these caterpillars. And if you're looking down a tree, you're going to see a totally different set. So if you're not hatching, you've evolved this ability, which is unique behavior, then that's a huge benefit and allows you to compete for the same resource, but in a very different way. I have a general question also, another general question, maybe. So some people who live in our society, I would say, by our I mean <clears throat> Western or United States society, you know, believe that we have a, a capitalist system where people compete and competition is intrinsically good for society. It like, leads to better services or it leads to companies being stronger and more effective. And do ecologists ever speak about competition as being somehow good for the world in terms of making species more robust? Or do they speak of competition as maybe being, you know, lead, leading to these more monocultures and leading to extinction, more events where uh, this constant competition is actually kind of make, makes the world a bit more fragile? Is that a com discussion that ever comes up? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if if the only thing that you had, like, let's say we... Um, 450 million years ago, there weren't land plants. And then the first land plants emerged and just lived in these sort of shallow coastal environments, just kind of slowly creeping onto land. Um, and let's say animals didn't follow plants onto land. And so all you had was uh, plants that were photosynthesizing and you didn't have parasites, you didn't have predators. Then the dominant, the, uh, the two factors that would affect the distribution and species richness of a site uh, would be comp uh, competition, so interspecific uh, inter competition. And then the other one would be the abiotic factors, right? And so this would be like in that tidal zone, uh, the upper tidal zone, things are more exposed to drying out than the lower tidal zone. So there's the effects of predation are not going to be you know, as apparent in those zones, it's going to be based on the abiotic factors or non-living factors. So you have the same thing. If you hike up a mountain, you're going to go through a sequence of different plants that shifts through elevation, which is a shift through uh, temperature and precipitation levels, etc. So um, in in the absence of predation and mutualism and the other symbioses that we've talked about, competition would be a significant limiting factor on the diversity of of things because the abiotic factors would play a role, but then uh, species would have competitive advantages over one and uh, over other species. And so you might just get a whole bunch of different specialists uh, in all of these different niches, but species richness would go down significantly because things would just outcompete other species. But if you have these other symbioses that can alter the playing field, so you have mutualisms, you have parasitism, you have predation, then you'll get a balancing out of the effects of competition and you'll get an increase in the overall diversity. So this is kind of like, um, you know, if we just, if we had a truly free market 
where we didn't have government subsidies and stuff like that, then, and we didn't have uh, antitrust laws or something like that. You might just get a few dominant companies just dominating everything and not much. Yeah. Um, and so uh, this is uh, just the other day, there was, you know, a meeting in Congress with Apple, Google, uh, Facebook, and one other tech company. I can't remember. Our, our dating company was actually the fourth one. <laughs> that's yeah. right. Pretty dominant. And Nick Arthur's <laughs> online dating profile service. <laughs> yeah, that's why I wasn't around for a while. <laughs> that's right. Um, and so uh, these big tech companies are are too big. And so uh, Hopefully, potentially, Congress is going to do something to limit their ability to have an overarching effect on the ecosystem of, you know, commerce. Uh, and this is it, in this type of market where you just have competition. You have these big companies that can just buy up smaller companies and just kind of devour. So the bigger get bigger and then just the smaller ones go away and you're just left with a very few yeah. options, potentially. But if, but if you have like a an analog of a mutualism where you have a government uh sector private sector uh sort of mutualism you know or you have like antitrust laws or or something else to even out the playing field you have government loan programs for small businesses uh that might give a competitive advantage to smaller businesses to make it in a market that favors in a a competitive market that might favor larger corporations. And another related question, this is maybe be a quick one, but um, this intraspecific competition, is there a discussion that, so, you know, if, if only a certain number of <clears throat> species, individuals in a species can survive and reproduce, and if there's this constant competition for which ones can reproduce, that, that makes the population healthier. Is that something that's, discussed ecologically the competition is somehow interspecific competition is can be good because it makes the population stronger um yeah sort of there's also i mean there are honest signals and there are cheats in every system so if you have like let's say with flamingos like the pinker something is the healthier it is because they're they're the pink coloration is from their diet of krill and so a healthier so individual that's eating more, more is going to have would be pinker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so that's an honest signal of an individual's health. But some things like cardinals, which are also getting the red pigment, red is not a color that birds can produce on their own. It comes from diet. And so something like red, if you can eat berries, which uh, red berries or uh, berries that have pigments in it that birds can incorporate as red into their bodies are typically not as healthy or nutritious as uh, non-red pigment producing berries. And so if you can ingest an abundance of those and be bright red like a male cardinal, you could signal, hey, I can waste all my time <laughs> eating non-nutritious berries junk and still be, yeah. still be fine. That gets back to our Snickers argument, I think. Yeah, but there, there are like other reproductive strategies that cheat or exploit that system. So if you start to do paternity tests, it turns out that you know even if you have a socially monogamous, um, even if you have a socially monogamous pair bond between a male and a female cardinal, the male cardinal might not always be the father of all of the eggs in the clutch. Um, and so there are different ways of exploiting that. So it's reproduction isn't always the survival 
of the fittest, or I prefer survival of the fittingest, because there are all of these different cheats to the system. So I don't think competition necessarily makes a species or a population healthier. Yeah, I mean, predation, typically predators go after weaker individuals, but weak individuals often can still reproduce, and the goal isn't to be healthy, it's to reproduce. Okay. Yeah, so that's like a... A not a long-winded. I I don't really know. We can have um, that question. I was just curious. Yeah. No, I think it's a good question. Um, yeah. Um, the last thing I just want to talk about is, um, and we've already s- sort of, we've already talked about this, but I just wanted to give a a framework for thinking about it. Um, it's just the different forms of competition that occur, and so there are two general categories for this. There's uh, direct or interference competition, and then there's indirect or exploitative uh, competition. So the interference, the first one, is where you have two species that are utilizing the same resource, but they come in direct physical contact around, or like an aggressive form of direct physical contact with one another when they're competing for that resource. So you could think of like, you know, if you have a, a bird feeder out and a blue jay flies in, making a piercing red tail hawk mimic call and, <laughs> and scares everything birds. else off. Yeah. yeah and so, th- so they've made this aggressive act uh, towards all the other species there to get rid of them so that they can then eat the food at that resource. Um, you could also think of like um, we, ha- we have uh, Oriental bittersweet here that competes for sunlight with trees and it'll vine up a tree as and it'll spiral up as these, the buds are kind of like these little hooks, but it doesn't have tendrils like a grape. And so it spirals and then it grows. Uh, every year it gets a little bit thicker in the stem. And so that spiral going up a tree gets more constricting and eventually will kill the tree. And so they're, the tree and the vine are competing for sunlight. Like the eventually. strangler fig. Yeah, exactly. Like the strangler fig. Uh, and Ooh, so my Halloween costume last year. Oh, that's such a good competition based <laughs> there uh yeah, Halloween costume. Um, I did it as a preview of this episode. Nice, nice. What was the response? A lot of sort of what are you, you know, strangler fig, what's that? Um, why are you still trick or treating or an adult? That was generally <laughs> yeah. generally what I got. But I thought it was educational in the end. Yeah. It's usually better to get why are you still trick-or-treating if you're an adult than why are you still trick-or-treating if it's December. <laughs> so <laughs> That's true. At least I, I had both of those, actually. I did, I did have the date wrong also. Yeah. I think it was still yeah. educational. Yeah, good. Um, and then the other one for uh, indirect exploitation, this is just if you uh, use a resource before something else can get to it. So, uh, like, I... I will weed and mulch around my fruit trees to prevent grasses from growing around those because if a grass is growing at the upper zone of uh the soil and it rains before the water Water even gets to the roots the grass will drink it up yeah so it's not that the roots of the grasses are strangling the roots of the apple tree um or releasing an allele of intercepting chemical. it. They're intercepting it. The research yeah, just before it can get get there. Getting it get first. there first. Yeah. So yeah. So that's indirect or exploitative one. Yeah. Well, I think we can use both those ideas in our dating service. I mean, sometimes people they may not have the competitive advantage. May just want to get there first. Get their profile out there at five six a.m. Try to find a partner for somebody else. Whereas others may want to take a more aggressive approach and just delete other people's accounts or. 
show up at their dates, <laughs> maybe beat them up or just out muscle them some way. That would be really so. good. Like if you if you have two people that match with another person and one matches at a higher rate uh, with that person, then they get the arrival time like five minutes early. So they or get to maybe do it the other way around where if you're less of a match, you get there earlier to balance it out. And you have oh, yeah. a little bit of time. There you go. chance as well. Either way, we'll think about it. We'll try both models and get back to you. There's a lot of fruit to be harvested here. There uh, is. We're <laughs> going to base most of our dating dating service model on this conversation that we had today. And well, except I like for it. the castrating barnacles, I want to say. We're not going to include those. Yeah, that sounds good. That You can roll that <laughs> out in 2.0. Maybe that's, yeah, for later. <laughs> yeah. Um, awesome. Well, uh, I think that wraps up for competition, unless you have any other questions. Uh, I'm sure I do, but, you know, we want to save those for next season. Maybe I want to save some things. Are you going to give a preview of what next season's topic is? Or yeah, so... be a surprise? So this wraps up uh, season one here where we've talked about symbiosis and all its many glorious forms. And uh, next season, uh, we're going to be taking a look, uh, deep dive into the world of scat. So, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about what we should call it. It's like scat. Do we call it poop? Do we call it feces? Excrement? Feces. How about feces, feces? Feces on feces? Feces on feces. I love it. Sold. Because there's always the, the poop on scoop or the scoop on scoop poop. Scoop on poop. But you know, but more, yeah. This is our intellectual sounding. Love it. Um, So yeah, so join us for season two of the single acorn for feces on feces. That's why we keep you around, Glenn. So yeah, (laughs) until then, yeah. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Bye, Teague. See you soon. See you later. All right, naturalists, that's it. Season one's in the books. Over this six-part series, we took a deep dive into the many ways organisms are found to exploit one another sure is a grim look at life. And in our next season, we get scatological, seeking ever further into the bowels of the natural world, digging into that world of waste. Coppervores, copperphobes, copper mines, copperphiles, it's all things poop. Everything you ever wanted to know about scat, and lots more that you didn't. So stay tuned for season two.